What's up, food marketing nerds? This is Alex Osterley, and thanks for tuning in to another episode of the podcast. On the show today, we've got Jenny Burns, who is the marketing director of Dang Foods. If you're not already familiar with Dang Foods, I'm sure you've seen their packaging and would recognize their toasted coconut chips on the end caps of most grocery stores around the country. Dank Foods is a trailblazer in the coconut chip category, and since their founding several years back, there have been plenty of similar products to hit the market. They've recently launched a new line of onion chips to complement what they're already doing, and Jenny's experience in branding and marketing has been a big contributor to their recent success. In this episode with Jenny, you're going to learn how to set yourself up for success with a strong merchandising strategy, what challenges come with inventing your own product category, how to scale the original vision of your brand across a growing team, and plenty more. Jenny brings years of high-level marketing experience to the table, so you'll have plenty of practical takeaways from this episode. So let's get after it. Welcome to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast, where we talk marketing, branding, and social media with the smartest minds in the business. Here's your host, Alex Osterley. So Jenny, thanks so much for coming on to Food Marketing Nerds. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. So can you tell us a little bit more about Dang Foods and how you came into your role? Yeah, absolutely. So Dang Foods has been around for about four years now. I think we just celebrated our fourth Dang anniversary this summer. And it was started by Vincent, who is one of our co-founders. He and his brother Andrew started the company. And it, it came really from a recipe from Vincent's mother. They are uh, Thai-American and their parents immigrated from Thailand. And Vincent was working for uh, sustainability researchers at the time and was hosting some people at his house and made a recipe from his mother for Thai lettuce wraps. And the toasted coconut in the Thai lettuce wraps was such a hit with all of his friends that he started to wonder if he was onto something. Um, And he had been kind of playing around with the idea of a food business, uh, working at going to the night market, in Berkeley with some ideas and he saw the toasted coconut and thought, okay, that's it. Uh, I got to start a company. And he named the company after his mother, whose her name is Dang, um, which is a popular name in Thailand. But it's certainly uh, one of our best assets is the name just because of the fun meaning that it has in America as well. And so the toasted coconut has been our flagship product. It's Uh, the first of its category. We helped really create this category four years ago, and it's been growing like gangbusters. And since then, we've seen a lot of brands start to get into the space. And so the company, as it grew, started to think about what's next and and what we're really about. And we came out with uh, some onion chips this year, which is a completely unique product, again, trying to redefine the snack category. And this idea that it's kind of like a potato chip, but made from an onion. It's whole sliced onions made from a whole food, which is something that, um, you know, is the coconut as well. Uh, we really value that in our snacks. And we think that that's the platform for us to jump into the better for you snack market and keep them really tasty is this idea of made from whole foods. So we introduced the onion chips this year. We've gotten them out into a number of stores. We're, we're growing those along the same path of coconut. Uh, it's really exciting. So... Toasted coconut, and I, I can't speak to, to onion chips so much, but toasted coconut isn't necessarily a new idea. But the way that you guys have branded it, it's basically created this this new category. So are there any challenges that come with reinventing a product in that way? Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely been a, a little bit of an education challenge. The, the thing that we have going for us that's 
really helped the brand, I think, is just the fact that coconut in general is a very hot item. Coconut water and coconut oil have gotten a ton of visibility. So that has really helped on the coconut side, give people an idea of the health benefits um, of coconut and the versatility. So our challenge has really been just helping them understand why toasted coconut is such a good snack. Um, And I think that a lot of people are, once you try it, you get it. Um, It's a delicious snack. Even people that don't like coconut say to us all the time, you know, they'll come up to a demo table and we'll offer up a sample and they'll say, no, no, I'm not really into coconut. We'll say, just try it. Um, There's something about the toasting process and the types of coconuts that we use that it takes some of that um, kind of raw coconut flavor out and gives it much more of a buttery, almost umami taste to it, really savory, sweet, uh, complex flavor that is so good for snacking. And it really kind of hits your sweet tooth, but it's actually a pretty healthy product. We like to say that uh, coconut chips have more fiber and less sugar than an apple. Hmm. I didn't know that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's something we're actually starting to tout a lot more because we've realized how compelling that is. Um, obviously, everyone wants to eat fresh fruits and veggies all the time, but sometimes um, when you're on the go or you're just sort of craving something a little crunchier, or a little sweeter, coconut's a great uh, substitute for an apple or, or a fruit like that. Um, so for us, trying to get that word out uh, through our packaging, through our demos, and helping people understand that it is a very versatile product. You can put it on your oatmeal, on your ice cream, you can incorporate it into meals, you can eat it as a snack. It's kind of got so much uses to it. The whole family likes it. Kids like it. Parents like it. Um, it's definitely worth checking out for people. And so that's that's what we really do on the marketing side is try and figure out how to get more people to try it, to understand its versatility and its benefits. And it, it really is a delicious product. I know I noticed it just on the shelves, seeing the the name of it was what caught my eye. <laughs> uh, I, I use it all the time on, on top of salads to make a bland salad actually palatable. Oh, I like hearing that. <laughs> I've, a few of the guests, or at least one, has a not a similar product, but in the, in the same category, just a, a healthy snack, where they... One of the issues they're running up against was the fact that people saw their their product as more of an ingredient that they could use to to bake or or sprinkle into salads. Is that ever a concern to you guys, or is it kind of just getting the the product off of shelves that that's more that's more your cause for concern? Um, you know, we don't see that as it's definitely something we see with people using it as ingredient. We encourage that, but. It's not the majority of the cases we see. And when we do uh, the consumer research that we do or we get feedback from um, people that use it, we definitely see the majority of them snacking on coconut chips um, as kind of a standalone snack in the afternoons and in the evenings. Um, So it hasn't been a huge concern for us. It's something that we are careful of, um, definitely as I look at kind of our online content and uh, when we talk about it, the product on the back of the bag. We want to make sure people realize this is a standalone snack. But I think the fact that it's generally in the snack aisle, um, you know, it's not in the baking aisle. Uh, so if you haven't heard of it, you're, you're not sure where to find it. Um, and that's definitely a challenge for us, trying to get it in the right aisle and make sure it's clearly telegraphed by the fact that it's, um, you know, a single serve package that you're supposed to eat it as a snack. Um, but yeah, I, I haven't seen that as like a huge concern. It's kind of a nice 
actual benefit of the product that it is that versatile. And I guess this next question uh, has two parts, but w- what is the benefit of being a, a snackable item versus an ingredient? And how do you make sure that it's, it has the right positioning within the store and on, on the right aisle? Yeah. So the benefit of being a snack is that the market isn't much, much bigger. <laughs> so the business opportunity is is much greater. Snacking in this country is incredibly huge. It's just growing by leaps and bounds every year. You know, since I think the 50s, basically Americans snack all the time. Um, so the idea that if you're a snack versus an ingredient, you're just, you're going to open yourself up to a lot more people. With the aisle question, that's something that we actually work on a lot with our sales team. It is one of our greatest challenges because you have very little control over where you fit in the store. Um, and unfortunately, it's rarely a consistent placement across every store. You know, as people in the industry know, it can be regional, it can be store by store. Um, so, you know, some of the bigger retailers will have a national planogram and we'll be really clear about where we are. But for the most part, and especially um, in some of the smaller regional chains, uh, we can be in the gluten-free set, we can be in the salty snack set, we can be in the healthy snack set, we can be in produce. Um, so we were, we work really hard to, to get a consistent placement because we think that's really important for our consumers to be able to find us. But if we end up in different parts of the store, part of the challenge then is to just get as many displays and as, as much promotional activity as possible so that you know people can find us and see us when they're shopping, if, even if they're not going to go down that, that specific aisle. And so with, well, first of all, I'm curious, I wonder why 1950, in the 50s, just happened to be that turning point for America to really start snacking. Do you have have any idea? I don't know that it was a specific turning point. I feel like it's been a gradual uh, shift in American culture over time. And I I wish I had the numbers for you. Um, But it's certainly, we've seen the snacking industry just growing year over year, every decade, kind of since then. And I think it has a lot to do with the way Americans eat, the way they're always on the go, uh, the fact that people aren't necessarily sitting down for three square meals a day like they used to. Um, they're working longer hours. They're busy. Um, so snacking has gone from just this sort of small indulgence to um, very functional. People are looking, as you see, you know, you can see all the brands out there that reflect that, um, that they're providing more in a snack, more nutrients, more benefits, protein, fiber, uh, because it really does serve a much more functional purpose than it used to for people. Right. And so kind of back to the the, the challenge of, of where your products are located on the shelves and with your new onion chips, where, where, where do people typically find those in the store or where do you, where do you see those placed most often? So for now, they've been placed near the coconut chips in kind of this healthy snack set that's different in a lot of retailers. It's kind of where you find the kale chips, the chickpea crisps, all the kind of alternative, kind of in quotes, alternative snacks to your typical popcorn, potato chip, tortilla chip aisle. So the popcorn and the potato chips, those are in the salty snacks aisle. And a lot of retailers have formed this new healthy snack set, which can be either at the end of the salty snacks aisle or in a completely different aisle, depending on the layout of the store. And our onion chips have been shelved in that aisle, um, I think partly because of the package. Right now they're in a pouch, and a lot of the snacks in that aisle are in a pouch. It's kind of amazing how the choice of packaging can dictate kind of where you fit. 
I think eventually we'd like to get the onion chips into the salty snack aisle near, you know, the terra chips and the other vegetable chips that are out there, the potato chips. Um, but for now, it's it's just a, a, a different size, a different format, and it, it kind of appeals to a more adventurous consumer that um, is looking to try something new. And so when they're in that healthy snack set, that's the kind of snack that they're looking for. But what's amazing about it is that when you try it, it, it sounds so interesting and it sounds so strange and you think, onions, I, I don't know. But onion is the number three fresh vegetable in the U.S., um, alone, but it's used in almost every cuisine. If you think about most of the cuisines uh, and cultures around the world, onions are a huge part of the diet almost everywhere. So it's actually a very broadly appealing vegetable, and it has a really good flavor that people kind of forget about. So I'm going to send you some samples of the chips because once you try them, you suddenly get it. You you realize it's got uh, more fiber. It's got four times more fiber than a potato chip. And it's got a million times more flavor. And so suddenly you're thinking, wow, if I'm going to snack on a chip and if I'm going to have that kind of indulgent moment, this is actually a much better base for the chip than a potato. It's got more nutrients and it, it's got more inherent flavor to it. So what can you describe what it what it tastes like? I, when I think of onion chips, the only thing that pops into my head is Funyuns, <laughs> which I'm sure it has n- nothing like. No, it's, it's similar, but it, it tastes much more like actual onion. It's got kind of this slightly sweet, tangy, crispy taste to it. I know crispy isn't really the flavor, but it's definitely part of the experience. Um, and then we have we have a basic sea salt, but we have a salt and pepper, a chipotle garlic, and a applewood barbecue flavor. And so that adds kind of a, a little bit of flavor on top of that onion base. That sounds delicious, and I don't even. I, I raw onions are one of the things, one of the few foods that I have a hard time, <laughs> unless it's in guacamole. So, and I have, I have a feeling that I would really like, like these the way that you're describing them. I promise you, you'll like them. <laughs> so, you kind of mentioned the 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 size and design of the packaging, really leads to to where in the store that that your product is likely to be placed. Uh, and I know you have a background in design and. Uh, and branding with CPG brands. So what are, what are some of the things that, I guess, can you, first, can you speak to the the, the strategy behind Dang's packaging and, and design and the size of the, the actual packaging itself? And then I guess, what are some of the things that you get, you think that you guys are doing really well as far as the, the design and, and branding? Yeah, absolutely. So the packaging themselves, the decision, it's made with a number of factors. Um, Part of it is thinking through what's appropriate for the consumer and the occasion. Um, the fact that most people haven't tried these products before, you know, especially on the onion side, uh, offering a huge bag of onion chips may not be the right strategy to get people to introduce. Um, we definitely wanted to position them as a premium product. They are, you know, more expensive than your average potato chip. So being able to put it in a pouch and signal that premiumness and kind of have that portion be appropriate for people that want to eat a snack like this uh, made sense to us. I think eventually as we scale and we look at bringing costs down on our side from production and we can balance out the margins better, we might be able to get it into a bigger bag. Um, So there's financial and consumer pieces of that decision. And then 
the aisle, as you mentioned, um, if we're going to be in the healthy snacks aisle, then the pouch is very appropriate. It stands up. The nice thing about it is it stands up quite well. It's stiffer. So it acts as more of a billboard. It calls people as they walk by. Um, if you're in a crinkly bag, it falls on its side. It's kind of tossed into the shelf with a lot of other bags. So the pouch has a lot of benefits and it's resealable, which is nice for sure for people that aren't going to eat the entire bag when they sit down, although I know some people do. As we think about what we've done well, our packaging, it's funny, it's been such an asset for us over the years. And I say that knowing that we just are undergoing a rebrand right now and we're we're working on changing all of our packaging for next year, for 2017. Um, and there's some specific reasons for that. But I do have to say that the packaging that we had from launch until now has been incredibly successful for us. We hear from people all the time that they love the packaging. And it was designed initially to be very simple, um, especially with coconut. It, we're you know, a company that has our roots in Asia. We still produce all of our products there and source our products in Asia. We have family ties as a company to Southeast Asia. And I think some of that inspiration trickled into the package when we first started for the coconut chips, a very clean, very simple, very refined, understated look. And it really helped people signal to people that this product was different. It was a kind of a nice tension in a way between the name Dang and kind of this in-your-face name, but a very, a very quiet, refined look. And I think that intrigued people. And they thought, what is this snack? And they picked it up and they tried it and they loved it. Um, as we grew and we started expanding to the onion chips, I think we found that we had to dial up the volume a little bit on the onion chips to kind of compete, you know, more with chips and just stand out a little bit more and and that we were starting to go in the direction of having two different looks. And as a brand, you want to have one feeling and one tone to your package. So what we did is we've spent the last six months redoing our brand entirely, defining what it means for us and redoing the packaging and the graphics. And we're really excited about the new look. It's actually a, a real evolution from where we are. We're not uh, starting over. We have a, a, an amazing brand, an amazing look, amazing name. Um, but some of the things that we were trying to capture a little bit more was this personality and this vibrancy behind the brand that we have. We are culturally as a company and our snacks are really innovative, really fun. And we felt like the packaging just wasn't necessarily communicating that as strongly as it could. And what started as kind of this understated, refined, elegant packaging, as we move into more stores and move to people that maybe aren't as familiar with the category and with a coconut chip, uh, we found that we needed to be a little more aggressive in capturing their attention and help them understand why a coconut chip over other snacks. So we've added a lot of color. We've tried to capture um, through the graphics kind of that wow moment that you have when you taste the product. That's something that we see all the time at events and at demos. People come over and they say, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm kind of interested or I've tried, I've tried coconut chips before or I've, I've seen your product. And then they try it and they instantly go, oh my gosh, that is good. And then they say back to us, dang, that's good. And it's this amazing moment for me to hear them parrot back our own tagline. And we wanted to capture that and, and have that kind of visual, wow, engaging, fun moment on the package. So you'll see that in our, our new line. We also wanted to make sure people understood the benefits. You know, we've talked a lot about the health benefits of onions and coconuts. We've added some more of those compelling health claims to the front of the package so people see it right away. And we've just created a system that can go across these two lines 
We're actually coming out with a new product line in January, which we're extremely excited about. And it's just as new and innovative as our others. It's a sticky rice chip. And it's basically Thai sticky rice made into little sort of balls and soaked in watermelon juice, which helps bind them together and adds just tiny hint of sweetness. Um, and then they're crisped up and add some seasonings. We have um, kind of our original, which has almost like a sesame toasted rice flavor. We have a sriracha and we have a coconut, which has our coconut chips in there. And it's a snack that's really popular in Asia. People buy it at the airport in Thailand and rave about it. And we wanted to bring a version of that to the U.S. for consumers, again, to kind of have a yummy, delicious snack, but still made from a whole food, still with simple ingredients. Um, so that was part of the redesign as well, is making sure that the system that we had stretched across these very different bases, this sort of coconut, onion, and rice, and anything in the future that we do, um, and still felt like one brand and one voice. Hmm. Can you walk us through the process of what what went into finding a system that was cohesive across all these fairly different products, but same brand? Yeah, I think the biggest thing was first trying to reset our mind into what we were as a company. I came on just as we were starting this process, and I think that was exactly the right timing because I do have a history in brand strategy and, and brand design, and I could kind of bring that outside perspective of what I thought the company really stood for. But for us, a lot of people just know us for the coconut chips, and we have a lot of competition in the coconut chip aisle now. You know, We may have started it, but if you walk down that aisle, you, you'll see at least three or four brands consistently next to us. And there are plenty of more smaller ones starting to nip at our heels. So we looked at where the category was going and we thought, what makes us different? And we found that a lot of brands were kind of going for this more very simple, unprocessed, almost naked approach, if you will, raw naked approach to their chips and their products. And for us, that wasn't necessarily what we're about and where we're headed. We are, uh, we kind of consider ourselves like a curator of these really interesting Asian snacks that we bring to the US. We are not, you know, we thought about how that factors in. Are we a, a Thai or Southeast Asian brand? And we realized that, no, we're much like our founders who are first-generation Americans. We are an American brand. We're a global brand. We're very much about these different influences. We might have an onion chip as a base, but the flavoring is a barbecue flavor, and it's quickly becoming one of our top flavors. And so we think that our audience wants that snacking experience that brings together these different cultures and these different cuisines and likes that element of discovery. So for us, that was when we kind of honed in on that, like what makes our company different? And it is that we are a collection of people that are always looking to kind of reinvent snacks, bring new experiences to that and make them as dang tasty as possible. I mean, we really consider ourselves the best tasting chips on the market. And we want people to understand that, that they don't have to trade off flavor and a delicious taste experience for uh, you know, those health benefits. So we took that and we put that into, you know, your standard brand sort of positioning document. And that was the brief. Um, and we worked with an agency to redesign. You know, it's the first time we've worked with an outside agency. So that was fun and scary and exciting to have our brand in the hands of an agency. Um, I come from an agency background. So I definitely, um, I knew the 
positives and the challenges with that go with that. Um, but they were, they were incredible. They really took care of our brand. They were very invested in it and they, they wanted to succeed as much as we did. Um, and so building a platform for all of those snacks, I think it was pinpointing those few elements of, um, innovation and delight and taste and bringing those to the forefront. And that, that brings up another question, just hearing you're from the agency side, now in a position where you're working with an outside agency, what are some of the benefits and then what are some of the challenges that, that you guys experience in this particular project? Um, I think that the hardest thing in working with an outside agency, and this goes for any agency, not just a design firm, you know, PR, and anybody, is that the work is often dependent on a really clear and succinct brief. That piece of the process is actually the most critical and most important to getting out the best outcome. And that is actually the hardest thing to create because you you realize how clear you have to be in your vision. You can't be waffling. You can't be thinking, well, let's just explore three different routes because you just don't have the money and the time to do that with an agency. Um, agencies bring a team of experts. They're expensive. And so you have to maximize that time as much as possible. And so we spent a lot of time with our agency on the brief. And I have to say that one of the challenges is that as we went through the process internally, we didn't always agree. And you know, some of that is you have these founders that started the company. It's obviously very dear to their heart. They have a vision for where they want to go. But as the company grows and you bring in new employees, it becomes a collective vision. And it, it starts to force you as a company to reevaluate you know, where everybody is and where they want to go. Um, and so it brought up a lot of questions for us about our future and about what kind of brand we are that were, you know, challenging to sort of have to quickly think about and decide on as a team. But I think we're better for it. And I think that we're more positioned for the future than certainly better positioned for the future now than we were when we started the process. And so you have these, this new design, the new packaging and, and new designs rolling out here. And then the, the launch of your new rice chips. Dang is still, it's a successful company, but still a startup. And with most brands, there's still limited budget as far as marketing comes. So what have you found to be the most effective in getting, getting the word out there and actually educating your consumers that this is a new type of product? Hey, this onion chip is actually delicious. And or that we have a new new product rolling out. Yeah, I think that you've hit the nail on the head in that it's all about educating and exposing people to the product. And so, you know, we are a startup or a lean startup. We're a small group with uh, lean budgets because we really want to grow as quickly as possible and keep reinvesting in the business. So from a marketing side, that's actually the biggest challenge that we're thinking through right now is what's the best way to get this product into people's mouths um, at a large scale? And I think... We did a lot this year to kind of experiment with that. You know, our um, kind of these lifestyle events, is that does that work for us? We do a lot of demos. How is that working? Um, we know that demos work in the natural foods channel, but we started experimenting with them in the conventional channels a little bit and trying to see if we can get the same return in conventional that we've seen in natural. And we're still working through those numbers, still trying to find the right balance. But everything we do right now as a company is, from a marketing perspective, is how do we generate more trial? Because as a 
brand that has a lot of new categories and new products to people, we can't rely on just advertising our name and our brand and expect them to get it. They have to try the product. And that's expensive and it's hard to reach a lot of people at once. So we're just constantly kind of investigating and brainstorming new ways to do that. And so just kind of transitioning from in-store to online, I see that you guys have a ton of great great visuals across all the different social media channels that you guys are on. And then you also have a ton of photos that are, I guess, that include other brands, like Justin's, for example. Um, I can't think of any others off the top of my head, but is that... Is that part of the strategy of, I guess, introducing products that people already know and tying in your product to maybe encourage people to, to try something new because they or just an, an association or I guess what's the thinking behind that? Yeah, that's an incredibly important part of our strategy. It has been in building our audience um, and that's brand partnerships and partnerships with uh, influencers and people that have a large reach. And you know, A, yes, it's really fun and beneficial for us to be associated with these types of brands that are like-minded and um, complementary to our products. But the real benefit, I think, on both sides is that you then expose your brand to their audience. And so you have this kind of efficiency in that you're creating a lot of content between you and other brands. Uh, You get to rely on other brands to help in that content creation, because content is time consuming and it's expensive. And so having partners that can help create content for you or with you is incredibly helpful. And then you also reach their audience and they reach yours and you gain new followers and engage people that way. So on a, on a small budget, having brand partnerships and influencer partnerships has been huge for us to help grow our audience. I think as we look to the future, it's still obviously going to be a huge part of what we do because it is so effective in reaching people and in generating new content for us. But because we've redesigned our brand and we've really thought about who we are, we want to make sure that we're getting our voice out there as well to our audience and really bringing people into what we're about in our own original content. So that's going to be a focus of ours going forward as well as start starting to make more video and more photos Um, that just focus on Dang and what we're about and why people should buy our products and where they fit into their lives, you know, occasions, you know, when they're hiking or when they're at work or with their kids and trying to show those scenarios as well to make sure that we reach people that are already eating our product and they realize it's not just about recipes and smoothie bowls, um, which are huge on Instagram. That's been our favorite platform is Instagram. It's where our target is and it's where people are really engaging with us. But you do kind of get a little bit of that smoothie bowl fatigue on Instagram. Uh, You get so, so much recipe content. And to the earlier discussion we were having, we don't want to just be about recipes. We want to be about snacking too. And are you guys able to measure? I mean, I know measuring the effectiveness of social media is extremely difficult and kind of a kind of a gray area there's just a lot of ambiguity between wh- where are people first discovering the product etc so how do you guys measure the effectiveness of of an, say an Instagram presence yeah that is a huge challenge and i wish i had this really smart professional answer for you but i think we're in the same boat as a lot of companies where we know that building this community is paying off in various ways. I just 
necessarily couldn't tell you exactly how it translates to sales. You know, we measure uh, we measure both uh, user growth and engagement, um, and those are two sides of a necessary coin. Um, it doesn't help to build up this huge audience and then not have them engage in your posts and like and share and be a part. Want to be a part of the brand. So for us, it's it's both, and we have different uh, content that we know has goals for those different metrics. And so we do take stock and we do make sure that we're always tweaking our content and looking at how we could do better to either engage or to grow. But we are building a community for something. I mean, it doesn't help just to have a community for community's sake. So we do sometimes you know, engage with our audience in terms of getting them to a coupon or alerting them when we have a new retailer. And that's that's certainly been important and it's a nice way to bring our fans into what we're doing, you know, how we're growing as a company. But I don't know that I could tell you that when we grow our community X amount, it results in X amount of sales. It's part of a larger picture. Um, We focus in offline world, in real life, on kind of our, we have five core markets and we really focus on the ground in getting more distribution in those markets, getting displays, driving sales, and so we try and use our social media platforms as a complement to those markets. And we do some targeted posts and we're playing around with that even more. We talk to influencers and people online that we partner with, you know, um, fitness bloggers or nutritionists um, from those markets. And so we hope that a consumer that might see us online and then walk in this store and see a display, that that whole thing ties together and that it's not just kind of a one-off. Right. I think it, it, it's tough to measure, but I think the, the rise of of this strategy of actually going out and, and paying influencers, not saying that you guys are doing that. I mean, every, so many brands are doing that. But the idea being that some of these influencers command $100,000 to do a video on their social media channels. And it's, it's, it's essentially that same idea of building up that community that's worth that much visibility, except it's it's your own community and your your brand. So that's, I think there's a, a funny split going on that people are willing to pay for, uh, pay for that visibility with influencers on another channel, but sometimes fail to see the the value in building up a community on their own social accounts. Yeah, and I think it depends on what kind of brand you are and your audience. I've seen lots of brands that do pay for that, and that feels appropriate with, you know, the scale and the scope of their brand and they're partnering with influencers that have kind of a similar scale or scope. I think you have to just be true to yourself. We are a startup. We're a small company. We're a family-run business. I think people like that. They connect to that. And so we don't necessarily partner or pay money for that kind of exposure because we just feel like that would look slightly inauthentic. Almost everything we do is earned and we we spend time cultivating relationships and and building up a presence um, that feels just genuine, that people that we partner with love our products, are excited about them, and they serve as those brand ambassadors for us, and we get exposed to their community, and we get that genuine kind of endorsement from them, and we feel like that that makes sense uh, for us. But it's it's different for everybody. So I'm curious, as far as building out kind of these organic partnerships, uh, as far as partnering with other brands, what does that look like from a an outreach standpoint or building that relationship to actually, I guess, partner on content? Yeah, I mean, it's a small industry. A lot of people know a lot of people. It's Part of it is just, um, you know, chatting with other brands. We do um, 
reach out to some that we don't know. Um, if we feel like that there's a synergy between our products or our audience, we'll reach out and say, hey, we'd love to partner with you. What do you think? And you know, if they're open to it, then we just brainstorm a little on different ways that we could do it, um, that both of our brands kind of get to shine and what are those shared elements that we think will reach people and then just slot it into the calendar. It's pretty common and most brands are are doing it and welcome it, I think, because you kind of have, you're always looking for for new content. I mean, I think that's the the grind with social media that you're only as engaging as your last post and those platforms reward activity, right? So the more you post, the more your audience will see your posts. And the more people engage with your posts, the more they'll see them. So you're always trying to figure out how to add in just enough content to keep people interested and excited, but you don't want to overload them. And so I think a lot of brands are always looking for new and different angles and brand partnerships can can help that. So we've got uh, we've got a few questions and this has been a, a really great uh, great peek into what's going on in a successful brand like Dang. Uh, we've got a few a few questions that we ask all of our guests, and I'm curious: Is there anything that you know now that you wish you did going either when you first started working at Dang or just going into the the CPG industry? <laughs> oh, so many. I don't even know where to start. <laughs> I think one thing that I really didn't understand before I got into CPG was how um, fragmented our retail and distribution systems really are and what it takes to get marketing activity in those stores. So I think as an outsider, you walk up and down the aisles of a supermarket and you see a coupon or you see something on the floor or you see a sale and you just kind of, you don't even think about what goes behind that. And for me, a huge part of marketing is working with the sales team to help enhance uh, what's going on in store and get that off shelf, get that display activity, get that promotional activity. That is the golden ticket um, because when you, you know, I think everyone in CBG knows that when you get your product on an end cap or you get a display, it sells faster. It just does. And you get noticed by a lot of people that may not be walking down those center aisles. So you're always looking for creative ways to get activity in stores. But again, it's entirely up to um, each individual store, each individual region, each individual buyer, even each individual store manager, how those get put up, where they get put up. And you really need to have feet on the street to do that. So we've started, um, you know, we, we do so many demos in stores. We've started leaning on our brand ambassadors to help be those eyes and ears, um, talk to the store managers, look for opportunities for those displays, make sure that they're executed in the way we want. Um, but that's a huge piece. You can't just create a shelf talker and expect it to go into every store or make a rack and expect people to take it. It is um, an incredibly grueling sell-in process and it takes a lot of work on the part of a sales team. Um, and thank goodness for that team because um, you know one small thing that you want to do a consumer contest or you want to make a rack, it is just like this long process to get it in the store, get it put up, get it executed correctly. And I never knew that until I started working in CPG. And that's just an appreciation for when you walk into a, a grocery store or convenience or whatever it is, and just the 
I, I guess once you work in the CPG industry, you can never walk into a, a store and not notice the merchandising or the 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 packaging and, and where everything is set up. It's just, you just I, I don't, it's kind of I went don't, once once I jaded, but you kind of walk in and just have a completely different perspective for the rest of your life. Oh, absolutely. And I'm constantly noticing things that my friends would never notice. I, I think everyone in CPG are like the worst people to be in a store with because you're, you're looking at every display or every small little sign going, how did they do that? That is so cool. Where, you know, where did they get that from? Because you are always trying to find some creative solution to get, to get your, your products in people's faces. And I'm sure friends are just like, dad, you are such a nerd. Yep. <laughs> so do you have any, just any, I guess, productivity hacks or tools that you use on a regular basis that, that help you keep on top of your work and, and be efficient? Ugh, productivity. It's an endless quest. I don't know the this most basic tools that we use that I actually love are Google Docs. It's the only way that I can even collaborate on things with team members and stay on top of everything. We use Google Docs almost exclusively as a company and for everything. And we love it. Um, so like my team and I keep running to-do lists, constant lists of resources of people we work with, of projects on Google Docs. And you can set, my favorite thing is that you can set alerts on Google Docs um, to email you and people make a change to a document. Oh, really? So, I didn't know you could do that. Yeah. So if you create, let's say, you know, I have 20 samples of our new products that we need to send out, I can create a, a list of where I think all those are going to go. And I can send it to our sales team and say, fill in the addresses and when this needs to get there by. And then when they fill it out, it sends me an email. So I don't have to keep checking. Um, so that's been super helpful for us in general in just collaborating. I bet we use Google, Doc too, Google Docs too, and it is the best tool. <laughs> <laughs> it seems so simple, but it is unbelievably helpful in collaborating. The only thing that kind of drives me crazy is just... Um, you know, it's great for spreadsheets and Word docs. It's not as good for presentations. No, I definitely agree with you. So do, do you have any, are there any books that come to mind that have shaped the way that you approach your work or think about the industry? It's funny. I knew you were going to ask this and I started thinking about the last time I read a business book and I, I am an English major, so I am mainly a fiction reader. I like business books, but I often find that they're kind of one really good chapter that's stretched out into an entire book length. And that if you can just get through that first couple chapters or the back summary, you, you've got the gist. But the, the I'm going to put in a little plug here because the last book that, the last business book I think I read uh, multiple times was written by my former boss, uh, founder of Honest Tea, Seth Goldman, and his co-founder, Barry. Um, and they wrote a book about the founding and the growth of Honest Tea up until the Coke acquisition, and it was called Mission in a Bottle. And what makes it such an amazing book is that it's a graphic novel. So it's a comic book. And it is obviously a quick read because it's a graphic novel. It's a really fun read. But it also gets really honest you know, with, with the brand that's all about honesty. They, they stayed true to that. Um, they really dig into a lot of the decisions they made, how they price things. Like a lot of the questions you're asking me, um, they go through these turning points and these decisions they made uh, throughout the company and why they made them, you know, how they structured the equity, how they thought about investors, how they priced the products and thought about margins. 
Um, and so for someone that's in a startup or looking to start a CPG business, it's a huge resource, but it's also just entertaining because it's a comic book. Hmm. That's interesting. Completely dif- different change of pace from the the run-of-the-mill business book. Yeah, <laughs> a, a little more um, fun to read at the end of a long business day, I would say. <laughs> so where can people go to find out more about Dang Foods and what you guys have coming up next? Well, they can go to dangfoods.com, and we're actually in the process of redesigning it right now. So um, hopefully when this airs, you'll have a brand new uh, brand experience that you're looking at. Our social channels, we're very active on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and we're at Dang Foods. And you can go to the store shelves and see our products in uh, Target and Safeway, and now we're in a number of Costco regions and Whole Foods and Sprouts. So um, I think now that you've heard about Dang, um, you're going to start seeing it everywhere because it's such a memorable name and brand. I know for the first the first time I ever saw it, I immediately stuck into my head. I was like, those dang coconut chips over there. <laughs> yeah, that's great. I love that. Well, thanks so much, Jenny. This has been a pleasure. Thank you. Really appreciate you having me on. Thank you all again so much for listening to the podcast. And if you guys are finding any value or enjoying what you're listening to, we would really appreciate if you could go over to iTunes and give us your honest feedback in the ratings and review section. It would really help us out. So thank you all again. And we'll look forward to talking to you on the next episode. Thanks for listening to the Food Marketing Nerds Podcast. For interview transcripts or to download your free social media ebook, check out foodmarketingnerds.com.